I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance to ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. By popular request, I'm speaking with Silver Corps instructor Darren Mon to discuss what it takes to work as a bodyguard for some of the world's most elite. Darren recounts how he got into the world of executive protection, as well as some fantastic stories during his time working with Oprah Winfrey and the Australian national cricket team. All right, based on feedback that we received from the previous podcast we did with Darren Mon, we're sitting down again to talk about some of the things that we kind of alluded to at the beginning, which was the executive protection work and your time shooting IPSEC. Darren, thank you very much for coming back to the Silver Core podcast. I'm glad I didn't scare you away on the last one. Uh, thanks, Travis. It's always good to be here. You got very heavy into executive protection and close protection security work and have been doing that for quite a number of years, run your own company doing that and working for other companies. How did you get into that? Oh, good question, Travis. Um, you know, being living in Zimbabwe at the time, there was a need for that. And there was a need for that in South Africa, which was a bigger market. And there was something that I didn't intend to do. You know, uh, I actually went to agriculture college. So <laughs> it wasn't something that I had um, as my bucket list. But something that um, made this happen was I got into, first of all, I got into the uh, sport of IPSC. Right. Um, you know what IPSC is. Uh, so practical pistol shooting. It was just as the, the world was starting to really take notice of it and, and the world shoots were taking off. We actually had a, a, a strange phenomenon when I just started shooting that Zimbabwe at the time wouldn't attend the world shoots because South Africa was still allowed to go. Ah. But when that changed in 1990, um, 1999, I was selected to go and represent Zimbabwe in Australia. And again, I was, in those days, I was using a single stack, 45, you know, yeah. and managed to get to squeeze eight rounds into the magazine after a little bit of tinkering, and that, that's <laughs> what we shot with. And it was awesome, you know, and we met such legends even in those days as Rob Latham and, and the boys. And, right. And I loved it, and I just seemed to have an aptitude to shoot. It just seemed to come natural to me. I, I, I don't know why. I didn't come from a shooting family. I did, did my hunting and that. And so... With that, I decided, you know, I'll, I'll carry on doing this sport. This is pretty good. And over the next five years, I actually went, attended another uh, two world shoots, uh, one in the Philippines, um, one in South Africa. And in fact, I, I think I may have got that wrong. I think Philippines were 1999. Anyway, uh, I'll, I'll correct myself later. Yeah, no problem. Uh, anyway, I went to three world shoots, and I did really well. I was Zimbabwean champion for five years for my sins. I, wow. They made me the captain. I don't know why. You know, this crazy <laughs> guy from the farm. Good for you. Yeah, it was all fun and enjoyable. And I also had the opportunity to help train other people and, and start training people who hadn't really shot handguns before. had been in the military, but as most people know in the military, you, shoot, you don't shoot handguns that much, right? Right. Um, and especially in our military. So they would come out and that's ask me to start teaching them how to shoot. And it was fun. I love teaching. I love people. I love imparting knowledge. It's one of my, my, my passions in life. You're great at it. Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I try. Um, and, you know, through that, I met people who would say, well, listen, you know, 
why don't you do some close protection work? In those days, it was still called bodyguarding. I went, well, I don't really know too much about it. I, I, I can handle myself. I can, you know, I've, I've been in some tough situations. I've been in some very serious situations that we've got ourselves out of. And they said, well, listen, we know these guys. We know these guys. Why don't you go and do a course? And I ended up going to South Africa and doing a couple of courses down there uh, because we had really nothing in Zimbabwe to do that. A bodyguard in those days was someone who just came out of the military and said, okay, you'll do. And he, look, he looked mean. Right. And I quickly picked up that to do a professional bodyguarding course, you had to take it more than just knowing how to defend yourself and, and you know, how to shoot a firearm uh, correctly. There were many other things that were involved in it. So what I started, I started picking apart what would be best. And a lot of it was client confidentiality, right. including uh, client confidentiality in, in that they, they trusted you. There was trust in you. And mm. also, there was, a bit, there was a bit involved in client comfort. They wanted, to know, they wanted to feel special. They were paying a lot of money. And I think this went back to my professional hunter's days, right? I started putting the two and two together. And so what I then started doing is after I'd done all these courses and passed the courses, I said, I think I can integrate this into my own training course here and start developing it. And so that's what we started doing. And then we invited instructors up to us to impart their knowledge on us and right. integrate into that. And what we found out, now this is quite interesting, and, and you alluded uh, right at the beginning of the first podcast that I'd done some security work for, for instance, the Australian cricket team. Right. Now, I ended up there as a, a security manager for five years, but how I have originally got that, they were coming to South Africa to come and play the World Cup. And right. There was a whole bunch there. And um, the South African company that were employing the close protection for the teams decided they didn't want a South African looking after their biggest rival. Because South Africa thought they were going to win that World Cup. Right. So they reached out to me, being in Zimbabwe, and I'd worked with them before. They said, would you come down and do the Australian team? I went, fine. And it ended up getting, I got on so well with the guys. Uh, we had, a, we, this, is, this is a great little story. Sorry, there's a little, little antidote on the side here. I love it. Now, well, during the World Cup, it, there were a couple of matches that were shared up for the, in Zimbabwe. But Zimbabwe were going through that political turmoil. Mugabe was in the news for everyone. And some of the teams decided not to go. England, for one, forfeited their match that they had to play in Zimbabwe rather than not go up there. And right. there was, that made international headlines. Yeah. Well, the Australians said, well, well, do we go? And they had this big, I know you're talking about all the major executives. This is a, this is a national team. And they are like the best, one of the best teams in the world. And they had to go up to my hometown, which was in the south of Zimbabwe, called Bulawayo. So the manager said, Darren, I've got to come talk to you. Now, the manager for the cricket team like God, right? He's the guy that runs the place. I yeah. said, yes. He said, listen, we think we should go, but we don't know. I want, would you be prepared to speak to the entire Australian team and tell them your thoughts? I went, fair enough. Right. And I could speak from the heart because my wife was still there. My kids were there. My wife was still pregnant at the time. Right. And then pull away. And I said, guys, it's not the security situation we've got to worry about. It's your political uh, ideas where you want to or don't want to go. The guy said, well, we don't want to shake Mugabe's hand. I said, well, I don't know if he'll even be there. But I'm just going to give you the briefing on the security side. And it worked out well. The guys, after the, the talk, it was well, a good 15 minutes. I was standing in front of this team that I really <laughs> only just met. And they went, you know what? We'll go. We'll go on your advice. We're going to hire. We're going to. We're wow. going to. Yeah, we're going to um, uh, get our own airplane, and we're going to go up there. 
charter it so there's, there's, we can fly it and we're going to stay one night instead of two and then we're coming back and that'll be our sort of and they went up there and they played Zimbabwean Bulawa. It was magnificent. The Zimbabweans were just ecstatic that they had this Australian team. I'm talking about the normal man in the street and that they had this opportunity to see Australia play in, in Zimbabwe. So that was fantastic. So that That's was the first cool. time. So that sort of just led me into the idea that you've got to be able to relate to the teams at the time. In fact, that time, that night they stayed there, they all came to my house for a barbecue, we call it a bride. Right. My poor wife didn't know what hit her. She had the whole Australian team, the management, and the Australian embassy <laughs> converge on our little house in the suburbs there. You didn't tell her ahead of time? Well, I told her, look, you know, I can't tell you too much, but we're going to have a whole bunch of people. But I couldn't tell any of my best friends except two of them. And I said, listen, I want you guys to come to my house tonight for, a, uh, you know, we call it a bride. They're why? I said, I can't tell you. Just come. <laughs> and when they arrived there, their eyes were just like saucers, like the whole Australian team in your house. <laughs> Anyway, so I, I, going back to what I said, I, I realized that be, being able to connect to the people that you're looking after, the people that you are protecting is an important thing. And so what I did is, is I started training my guys more in that, well, not more, as an extra. Listen, you better know your client's comfort. So for instance, let me give you a small example. The client's going to get into his vehicle that morning. You better make sure that his newspaper that he reads is folded up on his seat next to him. The, the water that he drinks is in, in, the, in the right place for him to drink. Ah. The air conditioner is set at the right temperature. You know, the radio station, if need, need be, or the music that he listens to. And the guy's like, really? And this worked out so well. So you talked about Oprah, and I can, I can talk now because it's been so long ago. <laughs> but that's how I actually got that job as well. What actually happened is another company in South Africa said, look, we've got this issue here. One, we need guys that can speak good English. I mean, what do you mean? Well, in South Africa, you have the Afrikaners as well that don't speak. When you, you battle sometimes to understand my accent, well, you should try an Afrikaans accent. Right. <laughs> I mean, I love the guys. but So they said, well, okay, we want you to come down there. But there was also this issue, and I don't know if I can mention this, but this is the, the truth of the story, is that we don't have the right racial breakdown of our security teams down there. They're all white. And I went, well, that's mm. crazy. I've got a whole bunch of guys here that work with me and we train together. Can you bring them down? I said, yeah, we can bring them down. So not only did I go down, I brought another five, six guys, or my guys down to be part of the team. For my sins, I was uh, designated as the CPO one to Stedman Graham. That was uh, Oprah's longtime partner, still is. Yeah. Uh, fantastic guy, absolutely fantastic. Uh, he's a motivational speaker, didn't know that. And I love, I love that. I love that sort of stuff, yeah. obviously. You can see that, right? Yeah. And uh, so we got in really, really well. And... We'll do another podcast once. I'll tell you a story about what happened <laughs> during our Christmas kindness when a whole tent blew down on us. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that was a big one. So that's really how I got into close protection is that it, it wasn't something that I had inspired to when I you know, left college or anything like that. It's something that came to me. And, but it's also, I think, the realization that it's not only that you have to protect your principal, as you call him, mm -hmm. but you have to look after him and sometimes you even have to baby him, but you have to make him feel good. But, you know, put him in an in environment that is best suited for the protection of, of him or her and, and make sure that uh, you can control that. Mm. Um, and sometimes there are difficulties. Sometimes you have clients that are, are very difficult and they'll push the envelope and they won't listen to you. And there's always that trade-off. Well, listen, how much um, do 
do you listen to me to, for me to be able to protect you that doesn't impinge on your freedom as such? Right. So there, there are a lot of difficulties in that, and uh, that still exists today. That's going to be a difficult one to juggle, too. I it's, mean, they want to be out there, especially the, the celebrities, the personalities, and your whole job is just to tuck them away, keep them safe. It's very difficult. It, it can be. I mean, sometimes you have awesome clients, they'll, they'll listen to you because they, they know that there's a threat and that they they want you to look after them. But at the same time, you're giving them enough space to be a human being. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not being a prisoner. And um, so you, you make those decisions, but sometimes they don't. And then you just have to roll with it because at the end of the day, they're paying you. And if you have to walk away from a, 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 a well-paying job because it's the, the client won't listen to you, that's being professional. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry, you know, we've talked about this. You're not listening to me. I can't protect you under these circumstances. I can't do my job. Mm-hmm. Because the last thing you want to happen as a close protection officer is your client get hurt. How often does that happen? Have you had to walk away? Has that happened to you? It's happened once or twice. Uh, right. Not often. We've, we've normally been able to resolve issues. That's not to say that there hasn't been a lot of times where we've had to resolve that issue, have to actually sit down and talk it through. Right. Um, you know, you got to understand a lot of the, the clients that we have are either high value mm-hmm. um, or have celebrity status. Here's a favorite one. Celebrity says, stop that person taking a picture of me. I'm like, I can't. That's totally legal. And everyone right. has a cell phone. So please don't do anything stupid in public because that's really what's going to happen. <laughs> that's You're gonna right. So you have to talk to them about those sort of things. Um, but by and large, I've been very fortunate because I think I, I, I normally want to connect. And mm. that doesn't mean it always happens. But, it, you know, it's something that I think is, is missing uh, the large part in the training of close protection. You go to some of these close protection courses and there's some really good ones around the world. But the emphasis is on fitness, on firearms training, on self-defense training, um, driving skills, which are all great. Sure. But don't forget that real personal part. Well, that's all the sizzle, right? That, yeah. that's a, and exactly. That's a, that consists of a very small portion of the actual job. It sounds like the actual job is basically good people skills. Yeah. Well, look, let's put it this way. So you'll spend at the range and you'll go and spend a couple of hours every week training, making sure your skill set is still the same where it's meant to be. I'm talking about a country that you are authorized to carry a firearm and you need to carry one. Right. So let's just say you do that. Well, how often are you actually, during the time that you work, going to draw your firearm? Never mind, fire it. Right. And the possibility is probably much less than, you know, 1%. So, you know, concentrate on everything else. Keep your skill set up. Make sure that you're ready for that because a lot of the times you're doing absolutely nothing and that's the hard part, to keep your concentration. Um, I've heard of some of the courses uh, recently and I think it's really good. You just get there. Four of you in the room, they, 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 they tape off a box around you, square meter, and they say, all right, stand there and uh, wait until further instructions. Three hours later, they're still standing there because a lot of the time as a close protection officer, that is all you're doing. Really? You're standing. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a saying in the close protection world, halls and walls, you know, you, you, you're sitting in the, the hotel in the halls and, and, you know, up against the wall. It, it's, it's, it's a lot of patience, but keeping a concentration because that's when it happens, right? Mm. After three hours of standing, you know, you start mind starts wondering you start uh, totally yeah and 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 that's when it happens so there's some really good courses around and you know it's been good for me um i haven't just done one-on-one you know i've had that 
that opportunity, the fortunate opportunity of, of working with, as I said, the Australian cricket team. I also work with the England cricket team and New Zealand and I travel the world. I've, I've been all over with these, with these various people and they, they, look, there's some really glamorous parts about it. Don't sure. get me all wrong. It's not just the three hours standing doing nothing, but you get to fly in private jets, you know, you, you drive the, the, the latest Mercedes, you know, the Maybachs, you get, and, and what I found for me was I got to work with the most interesting people because a lot of clients will come to an area and they'll bring their own personal close protection that they've had forever, that that's their guy, but they need three or four or five guys on the ground to work with that team. Right. And we've done that before. And you meet the most interesting guys, guys that have had careers that I've, I mean, I can, I can just, uh, in awe of sometimes, I'm like, wow, you know, did you guys really <laughs> do that? I mean, you're not telling me a story, but you meet these these incredible individuals, and I, that's what I really love about it. Well, I guess it's got to take its toll on your personal life. It's got to take its toll always essentially shadowing somebody, some other big personality and their, their big life and trying to slice out time for yourself in there as well. It does. It does. And I mean, I've been doing it for a long time now, you know, I'm in my fifties, mm-hmm. late fifties, almost <laughs> not quite, but close. Um, so I've been doing this probably for 30 years on and off and it does take a toll if you'll let it as well. You know, there's sometimes you can mitigate it. There, there should always be downtime. So, you know, the last 10 years when I actually ran the teams, instead of me being on the ground all the time, I would make sure that, that everyone had the downtime, mm-hmm. okay, to decompress, because it is a very high stress uh, job, but that you can decompress and that you can um, get back to your job the next day or your next shift, you know, clear headed uh, and, re- and ready to work. So there are those things, but also you got to, you got to look at your family time as well. I mean, for a family man, it's hard because um, mm. in the beginning when I was traveling a lot, my wife and kids would stay at home. That's one of the reasons I actually moved to Canada, but that's another story. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed that I have a wife that is very understanding and mm-hmm. um, very strong, you know, when I'm not there, she, she can do just about anything. So, but it does, it, it can take a toll on you. And I think where I'm now on my waning side of the career, I, I, I would say that any close protection officer worth his salt just will know his limitations and limitations come with age they come with uh you know with anything with time mm-hmm. you've got to be able to realize that and then work in because you don't want to weaken the team in any way and you don't want to put your principal or client in danger in any way just because you want to work that extra couple of years right so it's, a, it's a good thing to know just park the ego exactly <laughs> well one of the things and i've known you for many years and i've always admired about you is your positive outlook. Now you're talking about stress and decompressing, and I know there's been lots of, everyone's got stress. I know you've had many challenges in your life. What kind of tips and tricks would you give? How how do you keep yourself so positive? Well, it's nice that you say that, Travis. I don't always think like that, but I um, (laughs) I think what it is is that you can always look at the negative and you can always look at the positive. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. I've gone through some tremendously um, challenging times in my life. Times mm-hmm. that uh, so I would think, well, you know, what happened? I'll, I'll give you the one challenge. When we arrived in Canada in 2005, it was myself, my wife, my two little girls, and a baby. Mm-hmm. Between us, we had nine bags and $15,000. Wow. That was it. And it was in 2005. And that $15,000 ran out really quick. Yes. I've just been truly blessed number one, to be in Canada. I'm, I'm so grateful 
in every way you can imagine for being in this this wonderful country and what it's had to offer us and, and help us and assist us. And we thrived. You know, we've we uh, we settled in here. We assimilated immediately. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't say assimilated. Three. Three and a half years in Prince George coming out of Africa. We had to learn how to winterize in, in Canada real quick. Yeah. Understand what propane is and how, how to light a stove to keep warm. You know? <laughs> but um, it, I always look at life as an adventure as well. And adventures are never always going to be easy. And sometimes the harder the adventure, the more satisfying they are. Right. So I, I look at that. I also, also there's understanding and I tell my, my girls this all the time I said you understand life is not easy life is hard mm. life wants to beat you up mm. it loves doing that but let me tell you if you can get up from that because it will okay you're going to live a wonderful life you learn from it and you move forward and uh, it's, it's just an amazing thing if you keep that positive outlook it's like well something's good going to happen you know um, yes we've got to go through hard times we're going right. to get beaten down but I'm going to get up again and so I have that attitude. I mean, it's not always there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Believe me, I've been through some very dark days and like, what's sure. going to happen next? And I'm sure everyone goes through that. Sure. But I also look at the less fortunate in the world. I mean, I come from a country where, you know, people struggle every day just to live. I understand that. I, I also understand that people with disabilities, you know, I have a son that's special needs. And yes. I just look at him and I'm like, why would I even consider feeling sorry for myself? or feeling that I've had it tough, or I've had it hard. Mm. I mean, I, I don't have an everyday challenge that some of these kids have around the world. And so that also, you know, gets reality set in. You know, we live a really good life here. We're very, very blessed to live in, in, in this life that we live here. And, you know, I had that that opportunity, and you were with me. When, we, when I set out my fire, and there's a big fire going out on the property in the middle of nowhere, I sit and I just just feel so blessed. And I think to be able to have that feeling inside you, that uh, the gratefulness that you have for life, for being here, for for what you have, doesn't matter what you have, mm-hmm. you know, you're getting up every day, that's, that's an advantage and some people can't do that. So, you know, I think that also helps me stay positive, being grateful, you know, being thankful and, and, and just, just understanding that, that life is, can be hard, but it's a beautiful thing, you know, it's a beautiful place to be. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, holding that gratitude in your heart is definitely something that, uh, that'll drive things forward. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. We just went really deep there. That was We did. <laughs> <laughs> so, bit of a segue, but you mentioned a tent falling down story. I did. I did. So, this was way back when Oprah came to South Africa. Nelson Mandela was still alive. Uh, she was very close to him. He used to stay at his house. But she decided to do what they call a Christmas kindness, okay, which is a very, very good thing to do. Because besides opening a school, you know, and building a school for girls, she decided that she would go into these areas around Nelson Mandela's area, basically, and set up uh, a system where she could give presents to these underprivileged kids. Right. And now this was a massive undertaking because to actually even do that, the teams had to come out first and figure out where they were going to put these big, huge circus-like tents because they had to basically accommodate the whole schools and all the officials because in Africa, there's always a lot of officials, okay. right? So they also had to then go out and figure out what toys they're going to get and buy different toys, you know, soccer balls and dolls and 
they decided to put all these in backpacks and the pink ones would be for the girls and the blue one for the boys and and then the different age groups. And so there was a huge amount of preparation. They they sent our team six months before that and they asked me to come down because this is the time they wanted me to come and provide some of my guys as well. And we spent time with the the advanced team doing these this this work to get the toys and, and locations and setting up. Anyway, when they all arrived, Oprah arrived, as I said, alluded to earlier, I was uh, Stedman Graham's close protection right. officer, uh, number one, right? Yeah. And so I spent all my time with him and he would break away from the group quite often to go and do his little motivational speaks and stuff like that. So th- th- once he had finished that, he then went to join Oprah and Gail. Gail was Oprah's very good friend. I think she still is. Yeah. And... Um, Join them down there so that he could help and be part of it. So the the process went like this. A, a huge tent was set up. There was a smaller tent, which was an executive tent, where Oprah could go and wait and uh, have refreshments. And in that main tent, there were a whole bunch of benches and a main stage in the front. And then all these kids would then be bussed in with buses and they would file in in their, their order of age and they would fill this tent up from front to back. And... Once all the speeches had been done, then the procession was Oprah and whoever entourage was, in this case included Stedman, would then take these backpacks and walk down the lanes and hand the backpacks out to all the kids. It was great. And as the kids would then get them, then they would then file out. So the speeches had just been finished and we were just starting to hand the backpacks out. And as a close protection team, we were strategically placed so we could keep an eye on our principal. Um, that only got through the first row, and I just happened to look up out to the west, and there was this amazing-looking cloud, and it was just rolling, but it was still far away, and I didn't really think much of it because we're in Africa. We don't get tornadoes, really, right? Yeah. Not that I've ever seen. By the time we got to the third row, the wind had picked up, and this place was coming. The, 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 this, this rolling cloud was now really getting close. I'm like, this is not that good. <laughs> anyway, by then Oprah said, like, I'm going to go back to the executive tent and get a drink. And Stedman said, oh, no, I'm going to keep going, you know, because, you know, which is great. So let's keep going. Within the next five minutes, the storm hit, and it hit hard. And it was out of absolutely nowhere that the storm hit this tent. Now, I'm talking a circus tent. I'm, I'm talking poles as big as tree trunks that were holding this tent up. Right. So just as, as, as a, uh, a visual, the tent was set up in a longitudinal form, and along one side were all the trucks that had delivered the backpacks that were parked along the side of the tent. That was to the east. The, the, the wind came in from the west. We were halfway down one of the, the um, rows, and I realized this is not good. So I said, Stedman, run. Let's get out of here now. He said, what do you mean? I said, get out of here now. We had only just made it out of the tent when the full brunt of the storm hit. It hit so hard that it picked this tent off those, um, off those big poles and started throwing it over. By then, I wasn't looking back. But Stedman being a big guy, and he's a <laughs> tall guy, he yeah. took off and he was gone. He was like a giraffe. He was gone. I'm like, hey, he's <laughs> safe. He's safe. I got my principal's safe. Yeah. But just before I got to the where the trucks were lined up, where Stedman was running towards, Gail was standing there screaming for her kids. She couldn't find her kids. Oh, no. But at that stage, it was a split-second decision. We need to get under the truck because we're going to die. (laughs) And I felt it on the back of my head, the the hair standing up, these big poles coming towards us. So I just, 
out of instinct, I grabbed Gail and I rugby dived her, I call it, like a tackle, <laughs> underneath the track. Me and Gail skidded underneath the track. <laughs> and as we hit the ground, all I just heard was just, it was like a war zone. These poles were just raining down. But because of the angle where the truck was, they would hit the truck and not drop on us. If you wow. envisage what I'm saying. Yeah, I get it. formed a triangle. Yeah. But it was, it was like war. And while this was happening, Gail was screaming and I was holding it down. But now I had lost sight of, of Stedman. So I don't know, you know, might be in a bit of trouble. But who cares? This is like, this is Armageddon. Right. We don't know what's going on. And I look over to my right and I see this kid that crawled under the other and I grabbed him and I pulled him and it was, it was Gail's one kid, right? Okay. So she's found one. Don't know where the other one is. Anyway, this must have lasted only for about 20 seconds. And just all, everything you can imagine that when, when all hell breaks loose was That's happening. Kidding. And then it went from that to deathly silence. Deathly silence. Not one word, not scream, no nothing for about five seconds. And then the radio started going crazy in my ear. Because uh-huh. Oprah now is screaming, where, where is Stedman? Where's her best friend? Yeah. Well, as it turned out, Stedman ran around the side of the track, caught his hip. So he was, he was waiting the other side of the track. So he didn't get hurt, but he was now. I managed to get Gal and a kid out, saw Stedman, grabbed Stedman. The radio is going crazy. And guess who walks out of this absolute mayhem with two of the most important people? <laughs> Yours truly. <laughs> it was just one of those times in my life where it was like, whoa. <laughs> right place, right time. And it just happened. It was, and it, I remember it was, it, it, it was one of the most scariest things because I knew I was going to get hit. When you know, I, this pole's going to hit me on the back of the head. Mm. When we looked at the devastation afterwards, it was mind-blowing. The whole tent had gone. All, these, all the chairs had been knocked over. There were people who had broken arms. There was people that had con- massive concussions, including mm. I think the pilot. Uh, there was there was some serious injuries. Jeez. Anyway, segue to the story. So from there, you know, uh, Oprah runs up and she's very very happy that like Stephen's okay, but Stephen's like oh, my hip's really sore. Mm-hmm. So anyway, she separates, goes and speaks to Gail, and Stephen says, "I said Stephen, I think we should just get you checked out. Let's get him go to the hospital." He went, "You want you right?" And I had just this little stick shift little van type thing that we were driving around in. Whereas the way everything else was set up in close protection, the convoy, you have um, a limousine one that has the principal in and you have the lead and you have the backup cars. And, and, and that was all set up for Oprah, right? But for us, we just arrived a little later, so we were in that car. So I said, well, jump in. I'll push the seat right back because he's a tall guy. Mm-hmm. Make sure you don't hurt your hip. In fact, I said, oh, you know, I'll put you in the back. So he said, okay, let's go. So we jumped in. And as I'm about to go, next thing, Oprah's, the uh, bodyguard jumps right into the, the passenger. I said, what happened? He said, no, Oprah's coming. I'm like, why? No, she wants to be with Stedman. I'm like, okay, but I've got a stick shift, <laughs> right? And I know what she's like. She <laughs> likes the things smooth, which is fine. Sure, sure. And I went, okay. Anyway, she gets in and I'm like, okay, how do I let this clutch out smoothly and change gear <laughs> smoothly? And, and we're on a dirt road and I'm like, okay, and I just look out from the corner of my eye and I see all the other security guys running, diving into their vehicles, trying to form up, uh, you know, yeah. the convoy. It was, uh, it was just one of those things, you know, that we had to get there. And uh, anyway, I got him to the hospital and they checked him out and he was fine. And uh, after that, I dropped him off at Nelson Mandela's home and I actually got to walk in there. So really? there, was, there was another, whoa, uh, that my cap. That was a day. Um, that was a day. Yeah. And, and the final, the final thing that happened that day, so when I get back, I'm all dusty and tired and everyone's gone back to the hotel. I'm the last guy to walk in there. And 
uh, Oprah's other bodyguard, she has two, uh, and he says, Derek, Derek, come here. I'm like, oh, what have I done now? What have I done now? Because, you know, that's what. Yeah. So he, I get you, he said, wait here. And he, he goes to Gail, he says, Gail, there he is. And Gail ran it. I'm in the middle of the hotel foyer. She runs up and throws herself at me and hugs me. And I'm like, what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you get, you, you, you get uh, uh, sometimes you get those days where you remember and it's not just standing holes and walls, right? That is fantastic. Well, Darren, I really appreciate your friendship. I really appreciate you making the time to come in and speak to us again. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome, Travis, and, I, and it's, it's reciprocal. I, I value our friendship. You've taught me a lot out here as well, believe me. I've, I've learned a lot from you, and I'll continue learning. 